Hello, my name is Rose Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper, broadcasting out of Melbourne, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge that we record this podcast on Indigenous land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So on our show, we like to discuss and analyse politics, history, theory and activism from a radical revolutionary socialist perspective. Every episode, I'm joined by people involved in campaigns, debates on the ground and historians and activists who were part of the struggle. And we hope you enjoy this particular episode on which I'm joined by our producer of the show, Liam Ward. Hello, Liam. Hi. Liam's a socialist activist, filmmaker, who's actually written extensively on the history of anti-Chinese racism in Australia, which is pertinent to today and our show and our topic. And he's written on radical Chinese labour in Australian history as well, including a couple of articles in the um, theoretical journal Marxist Left Review, which I highly recommend people check out. So our special guest, even though Liam is obviously special, <laughs> our extra special guest today is Fleur Taylor. Uh, Fleur is a long-time socialist in Melbourne, and the topic that we're going to be talking about today is um, Tiananmen Square and the um, events of 1989. So Fleur was there, she's an eyewitness to this, and um, welcome to Red Flag Radio, Fleur. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get straight into it. So you arrived as a student in Beijing in 1989. You were 18, I think, fresh out of high school. Can you describe the kind of scene from your 18-year-old eyes in the city? Like, what were your first impressions? Well, I guess the first impressions were of a kind of a vast grey-brown kind of, you know, smoke-choke concrete jungle kind of thing, you know, in a way. But one of the great um, differences, I suppose, between the China of today and the China of then was that there were very few private cars. Like, there was just, like, bicycles as far as the eye could see, like massive wide boulevards, massive um, Stalinist kind of concrete buildings, um, lots of patriotic slogans in, you know, in Chinese characters in kind of 10-foot-high uh, banners hanging off every every building, and um, a kind of um, sameness, you know, to to the dress that people, even down to the dress that people were wearing. It was just really common for most people to be wearing kind of either khaki green or or this dull blue sort of um, cotton work clothes. And I think to our sort of eighteen year old eyes, it, it definitely looked like what we'd been told all through mm. our high school years. This is what communism is, you know, kind of grey uniformity and everyone looking the same, everyone's equal but they're equally poor, that sort of thing. So, mm. I mean, it's sort of measured up to our prejudices, I suppose, in, in that respect. Um, um, it's not necessarily that, you know, we were anti that, you know. I, I think a lot of us on the on the particular program that, were, that I was on thought that maybe that was the, the best possible thing that could be done for China, you know, with such vast population, with such vast poverty and stuff, you know, maybe sharing around the poverty equally was the best that, that could be got mm. out of that system. And so what was the course that, like, how did you end up, 
as an 18-year-old in China? Well, um, so this was obviously the beginning of 1989 um, and through the 80s we'd had the Hawke and Keating government and one of their big foreign policy things had been pushed into Asia. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, I guess coincided as well with um, developments in China where Deng Xiaoping and other um, leaders of the Communist Party were sort of trying to you know, capitalismize the economy a bit and, and open it up to market forces and stuff. And so I guess there was a harmony between the um, the policy objectives of the Australian government in kind of getting more um, as white Australian people who could speak Chinese um, and, the Austra- and the Chinese government having more people come from Western mm-hmm. countries and so forth. So it was like a kind of a language scholarship program, um, which wasn't that hard to get on really because there were that few schools that taught Chinese. So I happened to be going to one of those schools. Yeah. Obviously gave me a big head start and so that's how I ended up there. And just now and sort of historically the timing of your trip there has turned into something that you know, nobody would have predicted. So if we get into the timeline of things, um, it was April 1989 that this former general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party um, died suddenly who was a reformer. Hugh Yaobang. Hugh Yaobang, yeah. Who, yeah, he had been demoted from his position because he he had kind of given, you know, somewhat overt or covert support mm. to previous waves of, um, you know, student protests about greater liberalisation and, you know, more free thinking and, and so forth. And so, you know, he was demoted, stripped of his office or whatever. And then when he died, it was actually seized on by activists across China, I guess, um, in the way that many of these significant deaths in Chinese um, history have been before, especially in the modern democracy movement. Um, The mourning for that, you know, which is a kind of, I guess, an officially allowed outburst of spontaneity, right? You know, like someone dies. You know, be on the streets or yeah, be you're allowed demonstrative. To be on the streets, you're allowed to sort of like write poems and kind of posters and things about how important this person is and so forth. He had been a leader of the Communist Party, so they couldn't just ignore him. And it, it, I mean, I think at the time to us, it seemed as though it was like this sort of spontaneous welling up of like, you know, just the masses like just surging up with this feeling about Huyabang. In my later readings, when I was kind of writing articles about it later, what I realised was that actually it was it was quite a calculated thing on the part of pro-democracy activists in China to, you know, seize this opportunity and use it all across the country, not just in Beijing, um, you know, to, to try and open things up a bit for protest and, and um, yeah, protest and, and free thinking. And so it was the students that sort of moved first, right? And there was a march, I think you described it, in one of your pieces, a march 20 kilometres from Beijing University into the symbolic kind of centre of... Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I guess in a lot of countries, but particularly in China, like the symbolism of of places and their link to history is really important. And so um, in the struggle against Western imperialism in the early part of the 20th century, the student, the campuses from you know, Tsinghua and Beijing University were some of the most important and they, they continued to be and they still are. The, you know, the kind of the Oxford and Cambridge, you know, of of um, of Chinese university life. And Tiananmen Square is, you know, it's, it's as vast as I think I've put it as like, you know, 20 MCGs or like three or four Hyde Parks. Like it's this huge space it's it's the place where Mao Zedong proclaimed the you know the 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 People's Republic in 1949 so 
it's the obvious place to have a rally. You know, mm. it's a lot more impressive than the State Library here in Melbourne, <laughs> but it, it's 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 the same thing. It's the obvious place for someone to have a rally in China. And so how big was that first wave of, or that first march? Did it fill the square or was it? Well, I wasn't at that first march, okay. but, I, but I, it was some thousands. Mm. And then, so what happened from there to... to well, I, the the students kind of set up camp, you know, they, they set up camp in the square um, and, and basically said, you know, we want to we want to carry on Huyabang's legacy. We want to, um, we've got these demands, you know, and these demands are about, um, a greater free speech. They're about sort of opening to the West. They're about, you know, they included, uh, you know, for many students, all of those kinds of things that you see in student rebellions from Berkeley to Paris, you know, to, to all over the world kind of thing, that things like, you know, we want to be free to go in each other's dormitories. Mm. You know, we want to, you know, be free to listen to pop music, like the, the, um, you know, the music of the movement and that, that sense of sort of um, freedom from kind of like the, the restrictions of poverty and of kind of having to sort of fit within these narrow tracks of your future, your mm. supposed future were very important as well. But, uh, but the political content of it was about um, having the freedom to say what you think and to, to argue for, for what you believe in. Yeah. I was reading something about how how strictly regulated student life was, you know, because you think about it now, what student life is like that people just, it's sort of all this freedom that you didn't have when you were living at home. But the kind of depiction of student life at that moment in China was, you know, bedtime, a time that you're allowed to sit and read, time that you had to, you were allowed in each other's rooms or whatever, like, which struck me very similarly to the kind of sparks of the 1969 um, Paris uprising of students around when they were allowed in each other's dorm rooms, you know, so Ab- absolutely all of like, those you same know, kind of characteristics. Seven or eight people to a bedroom, you know, meal times, like very, you know, like loudspeakers going off, like this was such an unusual thing for us, like these like shrieking loudspeakers would go off at kind of six o'clock in the morning, everyone's to get up, you know, you're supposed to get out and do some sort of physical moves and things like that and then there's just this sort of exhortation and like at, at one point in the time that I lived in China, this is after 1989, I actually had a job teaching in a university. And, you know, I they asked me to teach like English conversation and American literature, right? So I thought, okay, this is great. I just done year 12 English, you know, like got all these ideas from my VCE things, made them do all these interesting things and write things and, and stuff like that. And I had them sort of all marked and ranked according to, you know, like their creativity, their participation in class, all the things that I was used to judging people on in um, Australia. Um, when it came time to put in the marks, like when I handed in my marks, you know, to the course coordinator, they're like, don't worry, like we've already allocated the marks. I'm like, but I haven't told you, you know, what my students did. It's like, all right, we know what mark they're going to get. And their criteria are somewhat different from the ones that you've chosen. Our Even when you graduated, the job that you were going to have afterwards was not your choice. So, you know, you go to university, you do all of these things, and then at the end of it, you're just put into a position somewhere. So there's heaps of different things that students were clearly um, agitated and mobilised around. But was there talk of politics, you know, that you were part of or were aware of, or did you get an impression? Because it would have seemed... I think maybe potentially a bit confusing then from your external kind of perspective of like, oh, I didn't realise people protested in a communist country. Did that seem like a strange? Um, 
well, I think it, it – I mean, it, how can I say? It's kind of like when you see people protesting in a mass way, like it's a universal language that, that even if you've never been in it – I mean, as it happened, I had been to, you know, a couple of protests before I went to, to China, but even people who hadn't, I mean, you just understand. You understand, like, people rising up and, and the joy on their faces, the unity of the marches, you know, the the cohesiveness of the slogans, the, the, the poignancy of the solidarity that's expressed by the chants and by the banners and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And so, like, it, it makes this enormous direct emotional appeal and it wasn't, you know, I mean, I think to the extent that we sort of thought that, you know, what it did do was disrupt that sense that we had started out with, I guess, that, well, oh, well, Chinese people will accept this, you know, everyone seems to go along with it. And, you know, I guess there's that sort of racist kind of barrier between yourself and another culture, you know, when you kind of go and think, oh, well, everyone seems to be accepting it, this must be the Chinese way kind of thing. You know, after a couple of months, when the protests broke out, we could say, oh, actually it brings people closer together because you can see that everybody wants freedom, everybody wants democracy, everybody wants joy and self-expression and all that sort of mm. stuff. It's, you know, this so-called communism, which is actually totalitarianism, isn't, you know, anything to do with China. It's to do with state power. Mm. So things um, heated up more in May and one of the kind of points of tension was this visit of Gorbachev, right? So the Soviet leader who was kind of a reformer in the Soviet Union, as people will know, was set to visit and did visit Beijing on the 15th of May. Can you describe a bit about why that was important? Well, I think everyone from every political outlook, from the most conservative Christians from Texas, you know, to the rebellious, you know, students from Paris, of whom we were, you know, comrades within our foreign students' dormitory, so they're like real people that I'm talking about, um, you know, could understand the symbolism of what it, what it meant when Mikhail Gorbachev the leader of the Soviet Union came to China for the first time in 40 years. Like there'd been this 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 uh, breach between the two sort of so-called communist powers for 40 years. He was coming. Everyone knew he had to be received in Tiananmen Square. He couldn't be received in Tiananmen Square because it was absolutely choke full of tens of thousands of protesters. They hustled him in. They did some ceremony at the airport and hustled him in the back door. I mean. Even 18-year-old idiots from Australia could see that this was a huge loss of face mm. and, you know, like just, just a real uh, – just a kind of real throwing down of the gauntlet, I guess, of the protest to – to the to the leaders because you could say I mean there were obviously many different currents amongst the protest protesters and there were plenty of protesters who wanted to come to some kind of cosy accommodation with the leadership if you think about it the most privileged students in China like so at say at the time about two percent of the of the young people went to university in China very very small proportion mm. so they're the most privileged of the privileged and the ones in Beijing at the top universities are the most privileged of those so the people out there leading the protests are probably highly connected to the people in power at a different generation you know so they plenty of them were, were ready to sort of come to terms with them or find some accommodation with them um so the fact I guess that they were prepared to throw down this gauntlet and and 
you know, hold the square, not, uh, not, not lie down to these appeals, you know, for national unity and all that sort of stuff and Mm. go back and be well behaved and stuff. I mean, the protests have been going on for a month by then, you know, they were already completely changing the, the atmosphere in, in the cities, in the newspapers, on the campuses and through the whole of society. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a real watershed and it's no coincidence that it was as soon as he'd left that they announced that they were going to declare martial law. Mm. And so can you just describe a bit more of what it was like on the ground as this protest camp was kind of developed and becomes more and more kind of established? There's hunger strikes that starts one element of how the students are tr- trying to find a way to express themselves, basically. And it was like one of the things that they could control, I guess, was what they ate or didn't eat. And um, so were you there amongst kind of all of this happening? Could you make out all of the, I mean, how much could you? Well, yeah, I mean, I have to thank, you know, Paul Keating for, um, for <laughs> giving, giving us, um, you know, entree to the, to the centre of the square because, because we'd come on a government scholarship kind of mm. thing, as, as it were, like we had the same kind of student cards as, as the students in the square. So yeah. students who came who were paying private fees had a different kind of student card. So we would come to the things and they're like, who are you? You can't come in here. This is like students only. And we're like, we're students and we're here to support kind of thing with our student so cards rude. kind of thing. And so we were, you know, in there and, and, you know, getting to talk to people from our own campus and who were who were there and involved in the protests and, and so forth. And, yeah, it was this atmosphere of emergency, you know, that, that like – Hundreds and hundreds of people were constantly coming on and going off hunger strike and, and like people would sort of like faint and be taken to hospital and come off hunger strike and then a whole new wave of people would come on and then they come back to the square. But because of the scale of how many people were doing it, like there were just ambulances like just coming in and out of the square all the time. So it was just this constant sort of, you know, ambulances rushing past, this cordons, you know, medics, you know, like so serious, like, you know, vision on the TV or, or you know, you could see people people kind of pleading with the students, you know, like, don't sacrifice yourself, you know, and the students going, no, no, we must sacrifice ourselves. I mean, it was just such a kind of, such an intense and emotional kind of situation to to be part of, I guess. And what about the um, non-students and workers and what was the sense of outside the square? Was there a layer of the, you know, how much of the population was trying to show solidarity with the students or... I think that's one thing that I would say, you know, in in the light of current events in Hong Kong mm. is very similar, you know, that there's, the, you know, absolutely broad from top to bottom of society support for the students. But more than that, there was, you know, strikes, there was, there was stop works, there were, there were marches of, of, of workplaces and so forth. And very significantly, there was a group of young workers who started to meet under cover of darkness, who set up like a kind of pirate radio kind of you know, like a, like an autonomous trade union that they were so, you know, they were, they were so, uh, I want, I don't want to say naive, but like they were so kind of pure hearted about mm. that. They even tried to go and register this new union with the security bureau kind of thing. Like to say, you know, like, look, you know, we're here, we're not trying to do it under cover of, you know, like we do it secretly. We actually are setting up this independent union and stuff. The, the security forces refused to register them. So they yeah. had to remain underground kind of thing. But although that wasn't a dominant part of the movement, it was, it was yet a very significant part of it. Um, you know, and, and it was inspired by the stand that the students took, but it was informed by the very real economic concerns that workers had because the, 
the economic backdrop to the protests in Tiananmen was this incredible inflation and, you know, assault on living standards that had been going on for nearly a decade in China. And that was the, you know, I think that was that was the urgency and also the, the you know, not to say, obviously the rest of society wanted freedom and democracy as well, but there was other demands too that were pressing on, on the wider population, the working class. Do you think people had a sense of how it might end or what they could win? Because basically the the leadership of the Communist Party were pretty intransigent about not giving in to any demands through these weeks of protests. We're not, you know, they ended up having a meeting, I think, um, with some of the student leaders and then just refused every demand and... So did, did you get a sense that people thought, well, I mean, I'm also thinking about Hong Kong now of like it's sort of freedom or death or did people genuinely believe that reform was possible? I think that if 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 people had, you know, expressed an opinion about it, I think what they would have thought the way that it was going to win would be that moderates within the party mm-hmm. – of whom there were some, you know, plenty even, you know, might hold the day and, and, and like might win the day and sway the majority kind of thing. And and I think the fact that it took so many months for the rebellion to be put down does speak to the fact that there were divisions within the Communist Party, as there probably are today, about yeah. exactly what to do about this project. I mean, you can see what it both then and now like what an absolute conundrum it is like you know you you think it's easy to crush something in blood but Tiananmen changed Chinese politics forever you know in in 1989 it influenced what's happening in Hong Kong today um you know so so there was a a leader within the communist party um senior leadership Zhao Ziyang um who was who was um uh, supporting the students who even appeared in the square, you know, shaking students' hands and stuff like that. But around the time that martial law came down, he was removed from, mm. you know, from influence. So, yeah. so 20th of May was when martial law was declared and it was then in the hands of the People's Liberation Army to come and break up the protest. I mean, how did people feel about that? That's one of the things that we look at in these situations of, well, who who is the army? It's people's brothers and sisters and cousins and mm. family, and they sort of think, are they really going to do it at this point? Well, I mean, look, I we, we were in the square the night that martial law was declared, kind of thing, and there was there was fear, you know, there was a sense of like, like oh my god, is this it? You know, what's going to happen tomorrow, kind of thing. I don't think anyone sort of thought, oh, no worries, we've you know the People's Liberation Army, they've got our back. I don't mm. think people, I don't think students thought that. Um, you know, like people were telling us, okay, you better go, you better go now, it's going to get dangerous, you better go and stuff. So that, you know, there was a sense of, of, of fear and concern. But I think especially amongst the, the population of, of, of Beijing, you know, there was there was definitely the sense of like, well, we're not just going to stand by and let it happen Watch kind of thing. Like right. we're not just yeah. going to stand by the sides of the road and, you know, wave the tanks through kind of thing. And so I guess what happened next was, you know, what you can see in, in amazing, you know, film and video that, that was taken by the world's press, you know, who were there for weeks and weeks, you know, yeah. they came for Gorbachev and they just stayed. And, you know, so they're like, 
there is amazing footage, like the Four Corners documentary that showed on the anniversary this year, I think was really, yeah. really um, moving footage of just people just surging out to kind of say no. And because I guess what, again, you know, I, I don't know when the previous time was or whether there had been, you know, such such a protest that had to be put down in such a way in, in China, you know, that they didn't expect or they didn't predict that these army trucks were going to be stopped by crowds of people and that people were going to, like, look people in the eye and reach out to them with drinks and flowers and, you know, old grandma kind of yeah. ad- admonitions and kind of, like, holding up babies to be kissed and stuff and and to actually and to actually throw the ideology of the Communist Party back in their face to say, you're the People's Liberation Army, we're the people. You can't fire on us. You can't hurt us. You've got to protect us. You've got to protect the students, you know, and you can just see, like, these young... Soldiers Looking just very just like dazed, you know. Yeah. They they can't meet their eyes. They can't, you know. Like they they just, you know, if they tried it on harder, then they were beaten up by crowds. Like you can see that in mm. the footage as well. That, that you know, people were prepared to not just appeal to them in you know pull flowery. them out of the tank. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's right. So yeah, so I mean that that kind of standoff, I guess, went on for you know a week or more. Yeah. And I, well then led to a retreat while they worked out sort of how exactly they were going to deal with it from there. And then on the night of June the 3rd, the troops kind of have re-gathered or whatever on the outskirts of um, Beijing. Um, so where were you at this point? Because you were taken on a trip somewhere. Is that, was that, well, it was just, do you think it was, it was coincidence or? No, no, no. It was like, it was Saturday night. Yeah. And we knew this other Australian guy who was in Tianjin, which is a city two hours away. And it was his birthday or something. So yeah. we were like, went for a drunken party Yeah. and um, slept on the floor of the dorm or whatever. Um, so, and then caught the first train back to Beijing on Sunday morning, June the 4th. So we yeah. weren't in the square and we weren't at the dormitories, you know, when when it when the assault happened. But we did sort of walk into the centre of Beijing, kind of in the immediate aftermath sort yeah. of thing. So yeah, I guess um, you know we could see the aftermath of of not the worst fighting because the worst fighting was in the west of the city and our campus lay to the east. But mm. um, you know, buses burned, you know, bloodied, beaten students, you know like bullet holes and just general chaos, tanks everywhere, soldiers everywhere, heavily armed, you know, I mean, the city in chaos and the, you know, the, the square protest routed. Yeah. So you get off the train hungover or whatever, walk into the, into walk this into the station scene of this yeah, carnage and yeah. what, what are you, what are people talking about at this point? And well, we, we, by whatever chance, like ran into two students from our college kind mm. of thing, like, and, um, you know, they're dazed, you know, and we, and, and we're like, what, what, ha-? you know, oh, actually we got off the train and we were heading for the square. We're like, well, we're here. Let's go and see what's happening in the square. I haven't seen the goddess of democracy, oh, which yeah. is this yep. statue that had been put up two days earlier. Um, so we thought, well, let's go there, take a few photos of the statue and then go home. Um, so as we were sort of walking against the tide, I guess we encountered students from our college and then noticed that, you know, she had like a broken arm and he was wearing shoes that were three sizes too big because he'd lost his shoes in the melee. And, you know, they told us what had happened in, you know, as disjointedly or whatever as, as they could. And, and we were obviously shocked and just, you know, turned to kind of accompany them home kind of thing. So, mm. yeah. So- 
So that night, I mean, the army moved in basically, no mercy, live ammunition, clearing people out, dragging down the statue, all of the sort of infrastructure crushed and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, nobody still knows really how many people were killed in that event. Well, you can talk to... You can talk to Tiananmen survivors and yeah. and they can, you know, like like Rose Tang who lives in New York, you know, who, who was a, a student at our college as well. Like she was there, she was filmed like 10 minutes after the, after the protest. Like people do know what happened. But I do believe that the majority of killings did occur, you know, on the, on the, on the entrance, on the, on the way into the square kind of thing. What I understand from eyewitness accounts to have happened is that the soldiers pushed, they surrounded the square, you know, they basically crushed the, the students right, right up against the monument, whatever the, the one or 2,000 that were left. Then there was basically a negotiated kind of retreat because there were some quite famous people who were in the square at that time and mm. they negotiated with the with the commanders okay there's this way you can get out of here some parents were trying to come in from another side of the square and it certainly seems as though there were killings there like people just you know cold-bloodedly shot dead but what then happened i i i think is that the students were just like beaten out of the square like so they they, they just beat the shit out of them mm. um and sent them out and then co- corralled everything in the middle of the square and just burnt the everything mm. to tents, the books, the posters, everything. And, you know, you could still see the evidence of that a few yeah. months later. It was it was obvious. So you were the, you then left Beijing after that point or well, you... it like it was we were evacuated in the end from Beijing probably because we were so young, like we were by the Australian eighteen year olds. Yeah. Yeah. Um they took us to the embassy a few days later. But at one stage it seemed as though there were rival army factions, like I know, because like we had people from the embassy ringing us saying, "What well, can you see out of the front gate?" Kind of thing, yeah. like because there, you know, there, there was this sort of a sense for a few days, like is, is China going to go up in sort of civil war, or like you know, is some army faction going to try and take? You know, like there really was this sort of sense of fear and tension and 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 that sort of thing. And mm. so I guess it was in that in that week that you know, about three or four or five days later, we were we were. And lots of other people, you know, left. And that would have been it for us, except that because of the experiences that we had, we just pestered and pestered and pestered these people in DFAT, like in, in Canberra, to send us back for the yeah. rest of our program, which was in Shanghai. So we did end up going back. Yeah, right. And you said, um, I think you went, you eventually got back in October and mm. went back to Tiananmen. Yeah, we were there on National Day, which was so that was, you know, 30 years ago, which was 40 years of the People's Republic of China, you know, or yeah. Yep. So so it was 1989 from 1949 kind of thing. So, I mean, again, you could still see the impact of Tiananmen on that. Like they ruined that too yeah. for the Chinese Communist Party because they couldn't have a huge pro they couldn't the risk calling people out on the streets for the mass rally yeah. that they probably wished that they could have had and they never have been able to no you know like so you know Tiananmen is still is still the nightmare that won't go away for the Chinese Communist Party so looking back on it now from your perspective as a socialist or as you're in your development as a socialist from an 18 year old to now I mean 
what are some of the lessons or the things that s- stick with you the most from that experience? Uh, well, just that, you know, that it is right to rebel, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that, that, like that, um, that you can't stop people rising up. You know, you can't stop people fighting for freedom. You can have the most totalitarian society in the world. I mean, we know this from not just China, but all around the world, people will find the cracks. I mean, I think one of the most poignant memories for me from that year is actually being with student activists in Shanghai at Christmas of that year. Mm. Um, You know, you couldn't talk about politics because you couldn't do anything open and stuff like that, but they couldn't keep the news of the Berlin Wall coming down out of the newspapers. They couldn't keep the, you know, like when when it was broadcast about what had happened to Ceausescu, like that that the, the, the revolution had risen up in Romania of all places and killed the most possibly the most brutal dictators in the whole of the so-called communist world. I mean, people couldn't shout and scream, but just the the looks on people's faces, you know, it was like after those months of repression and those months of people being like, you know, expelled from university for whistling the international and, and all that sort of stuff, like it was this gift to say that like even the most totalitarian regime will eventually fall, you know, and so... Although when I first came back to Australia, I found the experience of sort of, you know, being invited to be involved in left-wing politics a bit, you know, jarring because I, you know, I was kind of like, well, I've been part of these huge protests and they did nothing, you know, what's the point? Mm. Like the thing is that 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 urge to sort of like protest and rebel and stuff that just kept pulling me back to, you know, the politics of of what can really change the world Mm. and stuff and I guess that's how... I did end up, end up coming back and becoming, you know, being able to understand it, you know, through the lens of a revolutionary Marxist perspective. And, you know, because one of the big questions I had was like, well, how could you talk about this politics in China? People have fed Karl Marx for breakfast, you know. How could you yeah. possibly argue revolution in, in China? And it was Mark Matcott, another long-time, you know, socialist, who said, yeah, well, you wouldn't call it, you know, revolutionary Marxist. You call it workers' democracy. You know, it's the same thing. Like you just like you just argue the politics. You argue, yeah. you know, to fight for the for the labor rights, for the working class power, for the you know, you know, it, it, there's a way you, it, because because the need to rebel and to organise for genuine socialism is real. Mm. So the politics are real. Yeah. Well, um, that's a very good note to end on. I think actually, what we're going to do, because one of the, um, I think it sort of goes to that point that you made. One of the things that happened with the students in Tiananmen was that they would break into singing enthusiastically the Internationale and people would say, well, wait, isn't that a pro-communist song? But in fact, their interpretation of it was, as it is our interpretation, that this is actually the genuine anthem of international socialism and the struggle of people all around the world for freedom and democracy. So we're going to end our show. Thank you very much, Fleur Taylor, um, for joining us on Red Flag Radio with a little audio archive of that song right now.
you're listening to Red Flag Radio.